a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join me today. All right, I know you're not a masochist. Or if you are a masochist, you're going to have a pretty hard time feeling terrible about all the various uh, things that I've got on tap for today. Now, I'm going to warn you, there is, you know, some unpleasant news, some some hard facts that have to be faced. But uh, the goal of this program each and every weekday is to face those facts with a sense of optimism and most importantly, a sense of what are the principles at stake instead of just shouting bumper sticker slogans back and forth at each other and, you know, trying to prevail in that way. I'd rather that you see more clearly the world around you, what's taking place and why, but most importantly, that you recognize you have the ultimate power. It's a little thing called consent. And if you don't give your consent, well, nobody has a right to make you do anything you don't want to do. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. Welcome to the program. Our show is brought to you by LifesavingFoods.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, and our friends at MonticelloCollege.org. And just thinking about where to start today, I know there was a lot of attention on the California recall election. Well, it has come. It is gone. It appears at this point that Gavin Newsom has survived to serve out the remaining year or so that's left in his term. Interesting stuff here. Um, There were reports of irregularities, like a police stopped a guy with a with a bunch of ballots in his car, and uh, there were there were people who were showing up to vote and being told you've already cast your vote when they clearly hadn't. There was also the notion that uh, look, if you just use the flashlight on your iPhone or your your smartphone, you can actually shine it through the envelope, and that private vote, you know that that private vote was very visible. You could see who had checked yes or who had checked no, which means that, uh, you know, the people collecting and counting those ballots could actually very easily lose the ones that they needed to to get a desired outcome. Now, I know it's that is considered crazy talk, you know, for, for anybody to question whether there are as anything but the most honest and open and transparent elections taking place in our day. I mean, this is forbidden words. We're not supposed to speak such a thing. We're not even supposed to contemplate such an idea. This is the epitome of wrong think. And yet those irregularities in California just illustrate the the larger problem that has existed not just in California but uh, but elsewhere in America. I I'll just put my <clears throat> neck on the chopping block here and say I don't think we have had an honest election for some time. In fact, 2016 may have been the last honest election that was not manipulated into a desired outcome that we saw. And I'm not just saying that because, yeah, I'm a Trump boy. I'm, I, don't really, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I refused to carry water for the man. But it's very clear that uh, in the 2020 election, there were a lot of irregularities. It's very clear the press does not want people talking about that. So they deep six any stories about those irregularities. 
I mean, we're to the point now where we actually have, uh, you know, suggestions on the part of government that if you talk about this kind of stuff, well, this is just an indicator. You are some kind of domestic extremist. Terrorist is what they mean to say. Because with that terrorist designation, the gloves come off, right? I mean, pretty much if you're a terrorist, uh, the U.S. government claims, uh, you know, the ability to drone strike you anytime, anywhere. They just got to nail you down. That's all. Oh, and if they get the wrong person or if they happen to kill off a bunch of his kids in the process, well, you know, at least we're doing our part to make the world safer. Yeah. Okay. So with Gavin Newsom surviving in California, that may seem like, oh, crud, you know, the the fix is in. And and it may be, you know, I'm going to have to throw this out there, but it may be that Gavin Newsom legitimately was supported by enough people in California who believed abortion would be outlawed if Larry Elder, you know, this, this, (laughs) he's a pretty principled libertarian. I don't think he would be outlawing abortion, but he just wouldn't be pushing it or mandating it, you know, teaching the kids, you know, how to have gay sex or whatever. He's, he's a principled libertarian, which means government stays limited It stays in its corral, and it isn't let loose to do whatever it wants to do. But apparently the people in California, or perhaps a majority of the people in California, they want that. We'll talk a little bit more about why that mindset may prevail. But I wanted to share with you um, an article here from Alan Stevo. And this is actually much more optimistic than you would think. You know, Gavin Newsom was one of the worst offenders in terms of the kind of lockdown policies he initiated. And then on top of it, what makes him one of the worst offenders is he locked his state down hard. People were literally being accosted by the police, ticketed or arrested for sitting in their cars and watching a sunset. Well, we told you to stay home. (laughs) Yeah. And how'd that work out for you? But at the same time, Newsom is showing up at the French Laundry without a mask. His kids are showing up at their summer camp without a mask. In other words, the whole, you know, rules for thee, but not for me. Right there front and center with Mr. Newsom. And because of that, Alan Stevo says change is coming to California. He says it's, it's a pretty good indicator. When public officials start hiding from their constituencies, they know they're reaching the end of their legitimacy. So, yeah, it looks it looks bad for the moment, but there's the silver lining. The fact that there was a recall election at all should be encouraging to people who are finally reaching that point where they're like, you know, enough. I'm getting fed up with this. So here's what uh, Alan Stevo has to say. He wrote this on uh, September 14th. He says it's it's recall election day, <clears throat> September 14th, 2021. And the ballots are everywhere, as freely as syringes on the streets of San Francisco. He says people all over the state are showing up to vote and being told they've already voted. Police in California pulled over a guy with a backseat full of blank recall ballots and drugs. It's funny, the ballots are probably more controversial than the drugs at this point, right? Alan Stevo says this will be the crookedest election since whatever election was the last one to take place in some third world banana republic. Now, he says there's only a year and some months left for whoever wins the recall. And that period in office may be significantly shortened by the inability to determine results anytime soon. One of the system's plans is to lengthen the counting process considerably and leave Newsom in his seat. 
But Alan Stevo says whoever wins the recall will have a massive government working against him or her to deal with. So that's going to make change hard, unless, of course, it's Newsom or a Democrat who wins, in which case the government will work for them and no change will take place. Nonetheless, Newsom is sweating. French Laundry, where he dined with lobbyists with no masks, that's dragging him down. His son going to camp with no mask, that's dragging him down. Rules for thee but not for me, dragging him down. The leader of his party is even dragging him down, even during the honeymoon period of his time in the Oval Office. Now, the leader of the party is more popular than even Barack Obama, with the current leader of the party having received 81 million votes, the highest vote winner of any presidential candidate ever, yet somehow doesn't have the polling numbers to support that theory. In some jurisdictions, he was so popular among the people that he even got more votes than there are voters. You see what's happening? The narrative is falling apart. So, yes, Newsom is sweating. He's begging for his base to help him by claiming candidates running against him are far-right extremists. By the way, you better get used to that uh, that uh, label. Anything you do that seeks to limit the power of government to its proper role of protecting your natural rights is going to get you accused of being a far-right extremist. I see this actually play out uh, even in very conservative corners, so don't be surprised. It's playing out in California as well. Now, these are candidates that are politically centric, says uh, Alan Stevo. They're flexible, they're uniparty friendly, as Marco Rubio or John Kerry. So extreme is not the word to describe them. He says Newsom is so desperate that his, his supporters insist abortions will become illegal in California if a recall takes place. With control of the legislature, the courts, and the vast bureaucracy of the executive branch, that is quite the implausible claim to make. In fact, only scared people make those claims in an effort to motivate other scared people. Alan Stevo says Newsom and those who support him really know his base isn't going to turn out for him and that election needs to be stolen. That's their duty at every step of the process. Meanwhile, the silent majority who either won't speak to pollsters or won't tell pollsters the truth, well, they're pretty hard to measure, says Alan Stevo. They might just be angry enough to come out and toss Newsom from office. So here's the reality we're left with. If the thieves don't come through for Newsom, then Newsom is toast. Now, he says it's all relative noise, though. He goes, I'd be very excited to see a new governor of California. Others are called to that fight. Alan Stevo says his job is to rouse lions. We'll get back to that just the other side of the break. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Want to give a quick shout out here to one of my sponsors. That would be lifesavingfoods.com. Lifesaving food, actually, singular. Lifesavingfood.com. Yeah, we're talking about food storage. This is ReadyWise food products, both dehydrated and uh, and freeze-dried foods. Very, very easy to store. 25-year shelf life. Nice stackable buckets with grab-and-go easy handles to, to pick them up with. They're really, really good stuff. You just have to add water. And here's the cool thing. They're affordable and they are available. And that, uh, that counts for something because uh, right now there's a lot of stuff that is... Uh, shall we just say, harder to come by. 
there are some very interesting shortages that are starting to crop up. Right now, this particular kind of food storage is not one of those things, which means right now is probably the best time to act on that little inkling you've had in the back of your mind telling you we should probably bolster our existing food storage, or maybe we should get started with a food storage program. Go to my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the sponsor link for lifesavingfood.com. And when you decide, if you decide that you, you find something that works for you, when you get to the purchase, enter HYDE, H-Y-D-E, as your coupon code. They'll save 10% off your purchase price, and you can uh, sit back and feel a little sense of satisfaction and peace of mind in knowing you're prepared for whatever rainy days may come. So I'm sharing this article here from Alan Stevo. And it, he was optimistic that maybe, just maybe, Gavin Newsom was going to be shown the door in the recall election. I'm, I'm just looking at the early news reports, and it doesn't look like that's the case. It looks like Newsom has, has pulled off, you know, staying in office. That may seem like a bad thing, at least to people who are like, oh, man, we were hoping we could get rid of that dirtbag or we could get him out of office. I mean, after all, Cuomo, gone. Newsom apparently has been keeping his hands to himself and hasn't been sending elderly people to nursing homes to die in droves. So maybe, maybe he's got a little bit of uh, a little bit of help there. But despite the fact that he apparently has survived, Alan Stevo says there is something taking place here that's very, very good. So here's the silver lining that you may not see if you're just focusing on the result of the election. And this is, this is important because this is the kind of attitude you and I need to have wherever we happen to be standing right now if we're going to have the kind of impact we need to have. Alan Stevo says there is a spiritual and cultural revival taking place in California, and it's spreading across the country. He says the true work of this recall was done every time someone signed a recall petition and said to themselves, you know, the governor really does have to go. Now, he says the work of this recall election was done when Newsom was forced to put other plans on hold and deal with an election for the second time in three years. Politicians love reigning over you, but boy, do they hate campaigning. To be forced to campaign again by an unwashed mob, 40% of them Democrat voters, was a pretty big slap in the face for Newsom. The work of the recall was done when all over this country, people saw what was happening in California and were emboldened by it saying to themselves, well, if they can get rid of their untouchable tyrant, maybe we can get rid of ours. Now, Alan Stevo says not every state has a recall process, but every state has a method for removing untouchable tyrants. One year ago, Andrew Cuomo and Gavin Newsom were the golden boys of corona communism. They were the poster children. They were destined for the White House. Well, today, one is gone, and a second has been rendered a disgrace. Now, it would have been hard to imagine that a year ago. Only because of the momentum of the recall movement in California did Cuomo get pushed out of office. The California recall changed the tenor of everything. Sure, it was his grabby hands that they said cost him his job, but the search for justice for tens of thousands of elderly and others he killed with his COVID policies was not going away, and it still might not. It wasn't just his grabby hands. So Alan Stevo says the country owes a debt of gratitude to all who participated in the California recall election. But he says to dig even deeper, that is still, to some degree, noise, because it's such a big-picture-oriented way to look at things. 
those individual choices to stand up in life mean so much in concert with others. And he says there are even more hopeful stories. In fact, he shares a couple of them. Three weeks ago, a hundred or so in Silicon Valley temporarily shut down the San Jose City Council meeting in which councilmen were going to illegally implement a vaccine mandate. Officials ran from the meeting. Their staff even stopped answering their office phones as they hid in their offices. Poor people. These members of the public committed the crime of letting themselves into a public meeting closed to the public. And though a hundred or so were there, it was a dozen or so who truly made this happen. They didn't even know each other a few months earlier. Day by day, they communicate and grow alongside each other, building their capacity in their own lives and also growing into a pride of lions that can do astounding things. Four weeks ago, he says a few hundred parents shut down a school board meeting in San Luis Obispo County. The school board is used to seeing maybe a dozen people at their meetings. That one night... 60 people turned up to talk about masks and were shot down. Now, if you shoot down 60 people, do you really think they're going to go away? Nope. They brought five times as many back with them. Hundreds showed up two weeks later, and those who showed up weren't taking anyone's nonsense. The board's response? Close down all future meetings to the public. Those hundreds of angry parents, though, aren't going away. The world is changed by such tireless minorities. Many colleges are obediently complying with all mandates presented to them, no matter how flimsy the legality of it is. Palmer College, located in the heavily restrictive Santa Clara County, this past week decided to drop their vaccine mandate after students read the government policy and refused to let officials implement it. Within days, the policy was dropped under student advice and pressure. Individuals stood up, had the tough conversations, asked the hard questions through face-to-face conversations. I mean, do you, do you see what's happening here? Alan Stevo says, look, tyrants across the state are hiding on Zoom, having illegal public meetings because they can't bear to face the public. And he says, I've got news for them. The public will catch them. It's better to face such a massive tide of resistance early and address it, because if you run, you may buy yourself time, but it will come with a fury that appears to grow geometrically with the amount of force you cause them to exert to have their grievances redressed. Open meeting laws are constructed specifically to prevent such fury from building. Individual action is feeding massive change, he says. It doesn't matter what happens on a massive level, though. It matters what happens on an individual level. And here's what he's talking about. Brave pastors never closed their churches down. Brave businesses never closed down. Preachers are setting up tents all over California, having massive meetings despite what authorities say. The sheep remain masked. The number of unmasked lions have tripled. They live their lives unmasked. He says a woman in California recently told me the story of how she finally rolled her mother out of her windowless nursing home room against the orders of staff and outside into the sun, unmasked, into the loving arms of her grandchildren who had not seen her in 18 months. It was a moment no one will ever forget. The next time she came to visit mom, the nursing home staff locked her out. She demanded to speak to the director in his office and told him the next time she was locked out, she wouldn't be standing in that office. Her lawyer would. Problem solved. Now, Alan Stevo says, I doubt that that woman would ever have said a thing like that at any other earlier time in her life. Tough times don't break us. They make us who we are. And he shares other stories that go along with this. 
Look, the tyrants only matter in your life as much as you allow them to. They will be dealt with. Politics is downstream of culture. Eventually, they will follow or be removed. If you call out, if you called to deal, are called to deal with these people, he says, there's no time like the present. And if you're not called to deal with them, then don't sweat it too much. You have such power to nullify them in your own life. Just keep living that free life and things will work out just fine. All human history rewards the free man who can do exactly that. For each day of freedom is better than a decade of servitude under a tyrant. And here's the best part. You radiate freedom to the people around you. You show them by example that there's a better way. So step up and do it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Just a quick reminder for you here. My goal is never to scare you or leave you feeling angry, you know, with your pulse thundering in your ears. I do want to, uh, I want to offer, you know, some clarity as to what's going on. I call it the uh, never-ending quest for clarity. I want to know how the world is. And I'm willing to challenge even my own beliefs in order to, to see that. But more importantly, I want to know how can I impact the world in some way that's for the better. And that means stuff that isn't going to make the news headlines. And if you can get used to that, you will have impact as well. So if I, if I start going off in the weeds, you know, there, there's a way you can give me feedback, actually. You can leave me a voicemail message. There's a link in my show notes at thebrianhideshow.com where you can do exactly that. You can also just drop a message. There's a nice little comment section in the show notes as well. And I do appreciate those who say, hey, I had to take a break. <laughs> You're getting too intense for me. I need to know that because sometimes it's hard for me to see where I'm, you know, I'm in the thick of things and I'm, I'm more immersed in this than I really would like to be sometimes. But I want to get you the best information that I can. Here's a good one for you. Again, not trying to build outrage, but uh, hurrah for equality. Do you know now that we're ever we're drawing ever closer to the reality that uh, everyone, including our daughters, will now be required to register for the draft. Yeah, equality. Now, I got an article here from Lawrence M. Vance. This was published on lewrockwell.com. Reminding us that outrage over drafting women to send them to war may be distracting us from the immorality of conscription itself. This is, a, this is actually a really good distinction to understand. He says, earlier this year, I asked the question, will women have to register for the draft in 2021? And the answer is that day may be coming soon. Although the draft ended in 1973, the federal government continued to prosecute draft dodgers even after the Vietnam War ended. In 1975, President General Ford eliminated the requirement that 18 to 25-year-old male citizens register with the Selective Service System. Uh, During his campaign for president in 1976, Jimmy Carter promised to pardon those who evaded the draft. And on January 21, 1977, President Carter made good on his promise, granting an unconditional pardon to hundreds of thousands of young men who dodged the draft during the Vietnam War. Yet in 1980, Carter reinstated the requirement that men must register with the Selective Service System. (laughs) 
In its final report issued in 2020, the National Commission on Military, National, and Public Service recommended Congress amend the Military Selective Service Act to require young women, like young men, register for the draft when they reach 18 years of age. And back in July, the Senate Armed Services Committee, with five Republican no votes, approved an amendment to the fiscal year 2022 National Defense Authorization or NDA Act or NDAA requiring all Americans, not just men, to register with the Selective Service System. Final approval of the NDAA was a vote of 23 to 3. Now the House Armed Services Committee, which contains 31 Democrats and 28 Republicans, has voted 35 to 24 on an amendment to the NDAA. Five Republicans voted with the Democrats, Jack Bergman, Liz Cheney, Pat Fallon, Scott Franklin, Mike Waltz, to include women as well. Then the NDAA cleared the committee in a 57 to 2 vote. Can you see the direction this is going? Texas Republican Chip Roy blasted both parties for a recent committee vote and tweeted that its supporters can go straight to hell. Roy said he would rather see the draft abolished than see women forced to participate. Quote, abolish the draft if you want, but under no circumstances will you draft our wives and daughters. Total, complete BS. He did not use BS. He said what he was thinking. End quote. Many other conservatives share his outrage. But Lawrence Vance says conservative outrage over the possible drafting of women obscures the real issue. There is one thing and only one thing that the draft is good for, and that is giving governments a supply of cannon fodder to fight unjust wars. Waging war in the actual defense of one's country, home, property, and family does not require conscription. If the United States were actually attacked, that is, if foreign soldiers actually landed on east or west coast beaches or crossed the northern or southern borders, the government wouldn't have to conscript anyone. Americans would get their guns and flock to the coasts or borders and start shooting before the government or the military did anything. And then he reminds us, conscription is a form of slavery, regardless of what the Supreme Court says. No man or woman should ever be drafted. If young men and women want to enlist in the military, travel the world, meet interesting people, and then bomb, maim, and kill them for Uncle Sam, that's bad enough. But the government should never force any American to do so. Now, a heroic group of just four Democratic and Republican senators and representatives, including Senator Rand Paul, has sent a letter to the Armed Services Committee calling for an end to the selective service system because it's expensive, wasteful, outdated, punitive, and unnecessary. The small group of lawmakers also recently introduced the Selective Service Repeal Act. That's four out of 525 members of Congress. Lawrence Vance says conscription is abhorrent to a free society. As Senator Paul's father, former congressman and Republican presidential candidate Ron Paul has well said, a government that is willing to enslave some of its people can never be trusted to protect the liberties of its own citizens. I'll admit... I have some pretty deep concerns that uh, we are heading for some kind of a geopolitical uh, global conflict. And and look, I'm not trying to paint the, you know, the United States necessarily as the bad guy. We have definitely done our share of, uh, you know, policing the world and night sticking the troublemakers as Pat Buchanan would say. 
but I think we are actually in danger of being overextended, spending too much of time, money, treasure, and blood just simply enforcing policy dictates around the world. How many military bases do we have scattered throughout the world? Why is that presence so necessary? I know the traditional answer is, well, Brian, if somebody doesn't, then, you know, the bad guys, the Chinese or the Russians, they're going to they're gonna fill that vacuum. Will they? And as long as the military exists to defend our homeland, to defend our shores, why should that matter? Unless, of course, we have designs on whatever resources, natural resources, they want to get to. I mean, it's, it's not surprising. I just had this conversation last week with an individual who is, is very well versed on um, China and Afghanistan. And I know there's concern that to China's, you know, they're playing pretty tight here with the Taliban. You know, they're, they're really making inroads and, and, and playing well and offering support and saying, yeah, 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 we're here. We're, we're here to support you. One of the reasons that was given as a possibility for why China is so interested in Afghanistan is uh, the immense deposits of rare earth minerals which apparently are becoming more and more important you know, in, in the, the construction of various, uh, you know, batteries and so forth. So I don't know. It's possible. Maybe this is just a battle over resources. Bottom line, though, our military does not exist, and they do not swear their oath of service to go out there and protect the world from any monsters. Their job is to protect America, her people, the Constitution, and to remain faithful to that Constitution in the process. This is really important. And if we find ourselves embroiled in some larger global conflict, I have no doubt those in government who want to, you know, to push their agenda forward, they're going to reinstitute the draft. And I'm sure they'd love to score those extra, you know, points for for being woke enough to include women. And even uh, those who are fluid in their gender. Purple hair and all, come, yes, you know, you too can fight. Do you really want your daughters conscripted? Basically becoming a piece of government property because, well, on this paper it says they have to. It's a form of slavery. Granted, it's one that's celebrated as, well, we're doing our duty. But i got to ask you this. If your government is doing a proper job of representing you. In other words, if it's a government that actually deserves your voluntary allegiance, they should have no problem getting people to rally for the good of the country and come to their country's aid in a time of crisis. Right? That's not that hard to figure out. If, on the other hand, it's just simply, you know, a cover for whatever oligarchy happens to be pulling the strings at the moment... And they're just looking to draft bodies to throw into battle. I'm sorry, but I feel absolutely no duty whatsoever to send myself or my children into that battle as servants, as slaves. I don't think you should either. I will gladly defend my country. I'll defend it from its own government, for that matter. But the problem is conscription itself, not just whether it's politically correct enough. You can't make it politically correct enough to get around the fact that it's still a form of slavery. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. These are the folks you want to talk to if you are in the market to get a home loan, but you need to get it quickly. Like, say, for instance, you are dealing with the hottest real estate market in memory. Well, when you find the home of your dreams, this is where the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage is there to help you get that loan quickly, without delay. They have the expertise, they have the insight, they have the clout to make it happen. And yes, they are an equal housing opportunity lender. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. You can call her at at 435-703-4522. Or if you're in St. George, Utah, just trundle on down to 619 South Bluff Street. That's where you'll find the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage. So let's talk a little bit about victimhood, shall we? Came across an excellent video. It's an illustrated video, but it's it's a lecture from Jordan Peterson. Yes, Dr. Jordan Peterson. And he talks about how those who frame themselves as victims can use their status as justification for rejecting right and wrong. Now, what he's saying here is the danger of victimhood is that it can be used to radicalize a populace into embracing genocidal policies. Check this out. This is Jordan Peterson speaking. And so one of the things that Maya and I found when we were writing this paper, we were looking at the discourse that precedes genocide in genocidal states. And the enhancement of a sense of victimization on the part of one of the groups, usually the group that's going to commit the genocide, first of all, their sense as vi- their sense of being victims is much heightened by the demagogues who are trying to stir up this sort of hatred. So they basically say, look, you've been oppressed in a variety of ways, and these are the people who did it, and they're not going to stop doing it, and this time we're going to get them before they get us. It's something like that. And so there's something very pathological about the enhancement of victimization, which is, well... See, that the problem, as far as I, I'm concerned with it, is it's not, it's not thought through very well. Because there's, there's a point that's being made, and the point is that people have been oppressed and they suffer. And that's true, that point. But, that's, but then the proper framework from within which to interpret that, I believe, is that that's characteristic of life. You, you, you can't take it personally in some sense. And you can't divide the world neatly into perpetrators and victims. And you certainly can't divide the world neatly into perpetrators and victims and then assume that you're only in the victim class and then assume that that gives you certain, like, access to certain uh, forms of redress, let's say. It gets dangerous very rapidly if you do that sort of thing. So, for example, one of the things that characterized the Soviet Union, and this was particularly true in the 1920s, but, but afterwards, so the, the Soviets were very much... Enamored of the idea of class guilt. So, for example, although it was only about 40 years previously that the serfs had been emancipated, they weren't much more than slaves, right? And so that was the bulk of the Russian population. They were bought and sold along with the land. So, 
they had been emancipated and, and some of them, many of them had turned into independent farmers and some of them had become reasonably prosperous because at least in principle, I, I presume a certain proportion of them from being crooked, but I presume a larger proportion from actually being able to raise food. And of course, at that time, the bulk of the Russian food population was produced by these relatively successful peasant farmers. And relatively successful would mean maybe they had a brick house or something, and maybe they had a couple of cows, and maybe they were able to hire a few people. And so, you know, it wasn't like they were massive landowners or anything. But I've talked to you a little bit about the Pareto principle and the notion that in any domain of activity, a small proportion of people end up producing most of what's in that domain of activity. The same was true in Russia with regards to these peasant farmers. Some of them were extraordinarily efficient and they produced most of Russia's food. When the communists came in, they described those, those landholders as parasites, essentially, predicated on the Marxist idea that if someone had extracted profit from an enterprise, that they had basically stolen that profit from, from, from the people, say, that they had employed or otherwise oppressed. And so you could be a member of the Kulak, K-U-L-A-K, K-U-L-A-K, you could be a member of the Kulak class. And then because you were a member of that class, you were automatically guilty. And so what happened was, and you've got to think this through to really understand what happened. So what happened was the intellectual communists were sent out in cadres out into these little towns to find people who would help them round up the Kulaks. Now you've got to think about what a small town is like, because... So imagine you're in a town and there's three or four people or maybe ten people or something like that who are a little more successful than everyone else. And a certain number of people are going to be fine with that and maybe even happy about it because they regard those people as particularly productive and, you know, as stalwart members of the community, regardless of their flaws. But there's going to be some people who are not happy about it at all that are going to be very resentful about that and jealous. And so those are going to be people whose characters, I would say, are of the less positive type and so when the intellectuals came in and described the reason that these people should be treated as parasites and profiteers, then it was the resentful minority in those towns, and that would be the kind of guy that hangs around in the bar all the time and is completely unconscientious and fails at everything and then blames everyone else for it. The intellectuals came in and said, Here's, this is unfair that this happened to you. You've actually been victimized, and now it's your opportunity to go have your revenge. And so that's exactly what happened. Now... In some of the villages, some, sometimes the peasants would actually surround the, 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 the farmsteads of these more successful people and try to defend them, but that never worked out for very long. And so then these mobs, these angry mobs, would go into the farmhouses and strip the place right down to nothing. And they packed these people up and sent them on trains with no food at, out to Siberia where there was no place to live. And so they were packed into houses, you know, maybe they had a square meter each to live in and all their children died of typhoid and, and, and many of them froze to death. Many, many people died. Millions of people died as a consequence of the dekulakization, at least in, in, as a consequence of its total effect. So what happened then was that uh, th there wasn't any food produced. And so then six million Ukrainians starved to death in the 1920s which is something you never hear about, right? You never hear about that. Why do you never hear about that? That's a question worth asking. You know, it was an absolute catastrophe. They used to, so these people were starving. 
right to the point of cannibalism, right? I mean, it was ugly, as ugly as anything you could possibly imagine. If you were a mother, and, and so you're supposed to hand all your grain into the central committee, mostly for distribution into the cities. You didn't get to keep any for yourself. And so maybe then afterwards, if you were a mother, you'd go out in the fields that had already been um, harvested, and you'd pick up individual grains of wheat, and if you didn't turn those in, they'd sh that was death for you. So that's how far it was pushed. So, well, so that's a little story about how victimization, how the idea of victimization and, and perpetration can get out of hand extraordinarily rapidly. And so whenever people are beating the victim drum, you know, they'll cover that up with, with uh, empathy, roughly speaking. We're speaking on behalf of the oppressed. It's like, maybe you are, but maybe you're no saint because, you know, you're so sure that you're a saint and you're only speaking from a, the position of good. It's highly unlikely. I think this is probably as good an illustration of what we saw play out last year with Black Lives Matter and with the uh, Antifa and other associated groups that were going out looting and rioting and burning and beating. And it was all because we're here to stand up for the victims and, and, and so convinced of their own victimhood. And what they believe was this sense of righteousness that attaches itself to victimhood that, uh, you know, right and wrong just don't apply. It, it's the same dynamic that drove the French revolutionaries, the Jacobins. We are so right about what we're doing that we have the absolute right to chop off people's heads if, if they don't get on board with us. I'm going to include another essay in the show notes. I'll encourage you to read it for yourself. It's called Throwing Victimhood in the Trash. This is by Jeff Minnick, writing for intellectualtakeout.org. And it's, it's just urging us not to fall pray to the idea that I'm a victim and therefore I can't do anything about my circumstances because that's what victimhood is, right? The beauty of being a victim is you are not responsible for your circumstances. You can always pass the buck. You can always blame it on somebody or something else. It's always some outside thing. So lose the victim mentality. Beware when people start invoking the victim mentality because bad things tend to follow the exploitation of that mentality. We've got to get even for those things that were done that wronged you and your people. It's just class warfare under another rubric, but see it for what it is. And then for heaven's sakes, do not participate in it. This is The Brian Hyde Show. trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, welcome to the show. And thank you for becoming another practitioner of wrong think, even if it's just for a short time. This is why we have to challenge all the prevailing narratives out there, suss things out for ourselves, decide what is real and what isn't, and then most importantly, chart your own course. Really, it's, it's the only way. 
There's a lot of a uh, lot of force being brought against us, a lot of influence that's being used to try to corral us all into the same, you know, little sheep pen. And you stay in there and let somebody who knows what's going on take care of you. I mean, there there are there are information sources and there are influences that try to persuade us from a very early age, like maybe age five, that we are nothing more than little broken children who need somebody to look out for, someone who knows better than we. And unfortunately, there's no shortage of people in the political class who are willing to play that role. I'm here to tell you they're as full of it as a Christmas goose. And you have every bit the ability to determine what is right for you, what is best in your life, you know, assuming that you're not going to be violating anybody else's rights. See, that's a that's a compunction that uh, that apparently the people who think they know best, they don't have any problem with, with violating people's rights. Why? Well, because we know best. Therefore, whatever we do must be right. Anything you can do to put distance between you and them, to reduce your governmental footprint, that's going to be a good thing. In fact, let's. I wanted to start on a kind of a positive note here, because I, I have some things to share with you, which which may or may not, uh, you know, arouse a sense of, oh, dang, stupid politicians. But one of the things that you can count on. If you are really looking to to try to shift that needle at all, if you're trying to to at least be some kind of an influence for good, do not underestimate the power of being a good person. Now, this may differ a little bit from person to person, what their definition, what exactly is a good person? So just off the top of my head, I'll say a good person is someone who understands what their rights are, their natural rights, the ones that limit government power over them, who claims, uses, and defends those rights, but more importantly, respects the rights of other people. Meaning that anything peaceful should pretty much be free game. Anything peaceful that does not involve fraud or coercion or force, that should be okay. But unfortunately, there are a lot of folks with control issues. And, well, we got to get in there. we got to do this for the children. Do it for the children. But if you look around you, look at the people who've had impact on your life, the ones who've had lasting impact, I'm just going to hazard a guess that they didn't argue or berate you into becoming a better person. In fact, I would suggest that most of the time when any of us have reached a crossroads and we've decided, i got to make a course alteration here, I've got to be a better person than I was yesterday. More often than not, that kind of change, that kind of introspection comes because we encountered someone who was either of such good character or who showed us such unconditional love friendship and acceptance who believed in us at a time when we needed somebody to believe in us. That's what was the turning point. Someone saw something better and treated us as if we were already that better individual. And that was the motivation that got us to take those first trudging steps towards self-improvement. I know it sounds very lofty, but the beautiful thing is it starts at the personal, the individual level. That's very hard to co-opt. That's very hard to take off in a direction and then exploit for some kind of political gain. This is the kind of change that lasts. And right now, as there is growing darkness and there is growing division and discord, it's a good time to become that person who can be counted on to be steady, to be a source of light, and to live up to the principles that they understand. 
Now, I'm not going to lie. There's a fair amount of weight that goes with that. You may feel a fair amount of responsibility. Would it help if I suggested to you, though, that by tapping into that, to, that drive to simply be a person of excellent character, you will be amazed at uh, the, the natural resources, and I'm talking about the universe's resources, that will flow to you and work with you as you seek to do that. It's almost like God wants us to be the best version of ourselves that we can be and is more than willing to help us anytime we humbly set out to do that. I know, what a concept. If only somebody would have taught us this in Sunday school as kids. What, they did? Oh, I must have been goofing around or something at that time. Hopefully you see the wisdom of, of focus on yourself first rather than trying to fix everybody else. The biggest mischief that's going on in our lives right now is coming from the people who can't resist the desire, that lust to, to control other people and make them do what they know is right. It may seem like, well, but if I'm just doing, you know, if I'm, if I'm focusing on myself and just on getting my own house in order, my own heart in order, how's anybody going to know? And this is where people gravely underestimate the amount of influence that they have on the people around them. It's not about some big overture that once and for all, wow, look at the transformation. Why, he's the best person I've ever met in my life. It's more a matter of consistency. People who see you doing the right thing, not because people are watching, but because it's just part of who you are. You know you're doing it right. When people start to seek you out for your advice or for encouragement without your bidding, you don't have to hang out a shingle. The doctor is in. Please come talk to me about your problems. If you are consistently doing the right thing for the right reasons, I can promise you, people will come to you because they see that there's something of value that you have implemented in your life. They want to know what it is. They want to know how they can do it. And the cool thing is, if you actually are a person who is, has made that a focus of your life and you're trying to be a person of high character, you'll recognize that that comes with the sort of duty to step up and be the best individual that you can, to help others who are trying to make that same journey. If you've never read Plato's Allegory of the Cave, that would be a really good place to start. I don't know that he was necessarily trying to tell everybody, you know, hey, get your crap together. But he was definitely pointing out that those who have found their way out of the cave and to the light have a duty to help the people who are still back there in the darkness, watching flickering shapes on the wall and believing that's all that reality consists of. So there's there's my little pep talk to you. Think of it as a friendly kick in the seat of the pants. But I want you to understand, I'm not asking you to consider anything that I haven't been willing to consider or do in my own life. And sometimes that process can be difficult. Sometimes it means you got to go through a little bit of refining in order to improve yourself. But I can tell you with absolute confidence, it does work. And right now we need people who are examples of what is good and what is right, no matter what's going on around them. I talk about the remnant. Ever since I read Albert J. Knox's essay, Isaiah's Job, published back in the 1930s, this thing's been around for a long, long time. 
The masses don't care about what's right and wrong. The masses only want to hear what they want to hear. Anything that smacks of correction, anything that smacks of, you know, you need to get it together, they don't want to hear that. And they'll sometimes violently reject anything that, that is telling them you got to improve. But the remnant, what makes them the remnant, and by the way, I'm just going to tell you, I think you are part of the remnant. You wouldn't be listening to this message if, not, if you weren't, is a desire to find the truth. Truth is more important than being comfortable. It's more important than being well accepted and, and uh, envied throughout society. It's important because that is what leads you to what you hopefully will find is the best version of yourself, which will hopefully, you know, lead you back to God if that's, if that's the focus of your life. So when I speak truth, I'm speaking truth for the sake of the remnant, not to depress them, but to reassure them that, yes, this stuff still matters. These principles still are valid. And more importantly, though you feel isolated and absolutely alone at times, you are not alone. You may not see the other members of the remnant. You may feel like, gosh, they're just so so scattered. How could anybody know that they're doing the right thing? That really becomes more of a matter of conscience. And if you're not in touch with your conscience, well, this is a good time to start working on that as well. When we come back from the break, I'm going to take a little bit of time with Pat Buchanan and talk about what is really dividing the country right now. Pat Buchanan um, zooms out to about 30,000 feet. He gives us a pretty accurate description of who and what is tearing the U.S. apart. It's not just a blame game, I guess. It's more of a, here's how the chips are falling. Let's make sure we're not contributing to the problem. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Our program is brought to you in part today by the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah at 619 South Bluff Street. If you are buying a home anywhere in the state of Utah, I would strongly encourage you to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in order to quickly get the loan you need at the best rates possible. It's an absolutely insane real estate market throughout the Intermountain West. That means if you find a home that you really want, you can't uh, dilly-dally around waiting, you know, to get your financing in order. You've got to have it ready to go then. From VA loans to traditional loans to reverse mortgages, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage has the stability and the clout and the experience to help you get the loan you need. Most importantly, without delay. Heather's NMLS ID is 715-386. Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Give her a call at 435-703-4522. So let's talk about uh, the division in America. I know that I hear it quite often. You know, America's as divided as it was heading into the 1860 election. I think we may actually be even uh, more divided there. I think it was at uh, New Hampshire. I think it was New Hampshire, actually. Uh, their their state legislature is considering some kind of an article of secession. So, yeah, maybe it is 1860 all over again. I don't know. But I guess we're about to find out. But as far as who is tearing apart the U.S., Pat Buchanan has a pretty interesting take on this. He says, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, on Saturday, 
He's talking about on 9-11. Former President George W. Bush's theme was national unity and how it's been lost over these past 20 years. In the weeks and months following the 9-11 attacks, said Bush, I was proud to lead an amazing, resilient, united people. When it comes to the unity of America, these days, those days seem different from our own. A malign force seems at work in our common life that turns every disagreement into an argument and every argument into a clash of cultures. Now, Pat Buchanan rightly points out here, though he surely did not realize it, Bush had himself moments before given us an example of how that unity was destroyed when he drew a parallel between the terrorists of 9-11 and the Trump protesters of January 6th. Bush said, there is little cultural overlap between the violent extremists abroad and violent extremists at home. But in their disdain for pluralism, in their disregard for human life, in their determination to defile national symbols, they are the children of the same foul spirit. Way to heal us there, W. (laughs) Pat Buchanan says, what is Bush saying here? That Ashley Babbitt? The Air Force veteran who was shot to death trying to enter the House chamber on January 6th and Mohammed Atta, Mohammed Atta rather, who drove an airliner into the North Tower of the World Trade Center in a massacre of close to 3,000 people are the children of the same foul spirit? Pat Buchanan says, Query, was not Bush himself giving us an example of the malign force that turns every disagreement into a clash of cultures? Bush did not mention his own contribution to our national divide, his invasion of a country, Iraq, that did not threaten us, did not attack us, did not want war with us, to disarm it of weapons it did not even have. Which contributed more to the loss of America's national unity? Four hours of mob violence in the Capitol on the afternoon of January 6th, 2021, or the 18-year war in Iraq that Bush launched in 2003? In those fateful hours after 9-11, said Bush, many Americans struggled, struggled to understand why an enemy would hate us with such zeal. Yet well before 9-11, says Pat Buchanan, Osama bin Laden, in his declaration of war on us, listed his grievances. Our sanctions were starving the children of Iraq. Our military presence on the sacred soil of Saudi Arabia, home to Mecca, was a national insult and a blasphemous outrage to Islam. After 9-11, Bush invaded Afghanistan and Iraq. President Barack Obama attacked Libya and plunged us into the Syrian and Yemeni civil wars. Thus, over 20 years, we have been responsible for the deaths of hundreds of thousands of Afghanis, Syrians, Iraqis, Yemenis, soldiers and civilians alike, and driven hundreds of thousands more from their homes and their countries. Are Americans really as oblivious, as Bush suggests, as to why it was that our enemies hate us with such zeal? Many of these people want us out of their countries for the same reason that 18th and 19th century Americans wanted the French, British, and Spanish out of our country and out of our hemisphere. Yet it's not only the Bush and Obama wars that have made so many enemies abroad and so deeply divided us here at home. Buchanan talks about how our southern border is being overrun by illegal immigrants whose number since uh, President Joe Biden took office has been has been running at close to two million a year with 30,000 getaways a month. These last are mostly males who never make contact with the Border Patrol as they move on to their chosen destinations. They're coming now not only from Mexico and northern tier countries of Central America, but also from some 100 countries around the world. 
Americans fear they are losing their country to the uninvited and invading millions of the global South coming to dispossess them of their patrimony. They never voted for this invasion and have wanted their chosen leaders to stop it. Former President Donald Trump earned their trust because he tried and to a great degree succeeded. Now, Pat Buchanan says, unlike previous generations, our 21st century divisions are far broader, not just economic and political, but social, moral, cultural, and racial. He says abortion, same-sex marriage, and transgender rights divide us. Socialism and capitalism divide us. Affirmative action, Black Lives Matter, urban crime, gun violence, and critical race theory divide us. Allegations of white privilege and white supremacy and demands that equality of opportunity give way to equity of rewards divide us. In the COVID-19 pandemic, the wearing of masks and vaccine mandates divide us. He says demands to tear down monuments and memorials to those who were, until lately, America's greats, from Christopher Columbus to George Washington to Thomas Jefferson and Andrew Jackson, from Abraham Lincoln and Robert E. Lee to Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson, divide us. He says we're even divided today on the most fundamental of questions. Is America now, and has it always been, a good and great country, worthy of the loyalty and love of all its children, of all its citizens? And are we Americans proceeding toward that more perfect union or heading for a reenactment of our previous violent disunion? I know a lot of people disagree with Pat Buchanan. In fact, I, I disagree with him You know, on, on the southern border, but I think he gives a very honest and straightforward appraisal of where we are and what the what many of the players are in fomenting that division. Now, you'll notice he stops short of offering the solution, which some people would say, well, if you describe a problem without uh, putting forth a solution, why, you're just complaining. But I would remind you that, you know, usually the responsibility for providing a solution falls to the person who actually caused the problem rather than the one who's pointing it out. If your neighbor comes over and says, hey, uh, your garage is on fire. Well, you're pointing out the problem. You put it out. No, they're just they're actually doing you a favor by trying to let you know there is a problem and it's going to get worse if it isn't taken care of. As for the division. I don't know. Short of, you know, Jesus coming back and, and personally reigning on the earth. I don't know what is going to heal that division. Clearly, there are a lot of things that uh, we once, you know, embraced in spite of our differences that uh, it's just no longer possible. But if you are serious about helping to ease that problem of division, this is the one thing that you and I can do, and we can do it with confidence, knowing that uh, it's impossible to fail if we approach this with, with this, uh, in this manner. We can't stop the division, but we can definitely prevent it from growing by not bringing more division into the world through our actions and our words. I hope that makes sense. I talk about some pretty weighty subjects on here. Sometimes when I'm done, I'm, I have to go unplug and, and take a dandelion break to clear my head. But my prime directive is always bring up the tough topics, but do it without bringing more anger or more fear to the situation. And I really hope I'm succeeding on that count. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I want to mention that to among my sponsors, you will find lifesavingfood.com. Now, this is ReadyWise Food Storage. This is good quality stuff, 25-year shelf life, a great variety to choose from. By the way, if you have a gluten-free individual in your home, someone who just can't handle gluten, I look, we've, we've had to deal with that before, and it can make dinner time interesting. It can make grocery shopping interesting. It definitely adds a little twist to your food storage plans. Since for a lot of people, wheat, which is the primary source of gluten, is is going to be one of the big staples. Oh, we've got tons of wheat. That's great. What about your family members who can't eat wheat? So if you look around at the website, which is linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com, it's lifesavingfood.com, you will find that not only do they have a terrific selection of, of just regular food storage items, but they also have a lot of gluten-free items. Wouldn't that ease your burden just a little bit more, knowing that you're not only prepared for a rainy day, but if you have someone who has a celiac disease or otherwise is just gluten intolerant, they're not out in the cold. They're not going to be out there munching on, you know, clover or <laughs> bark or something like that. You can actually feed the people in your life who, who don't have necessarily the same dietary uh, requirements that you do. The availability is great right now. Stocks are high. Prices are good. You could have this stuff delivered right to your home. But the time to act is now before the demand gets too high. So click on the link. Do a little bit of shopping. When you get to purchase, be sure to use HYDE. That's your coupon code. HIDE. They'll give you 10% off with that code. So let's talk a little bit about some of the growing shortages I mean, look, none of us want to consider that maybe the lifestyle that we've become accustomed to could be on its way out. I've heard people say, I've said it myself, and I I do believe that uh, the time of, of comfortable, prosperous living that many of us have grown accustomed to is drawing to a close. And that doesn't mean we're going to be staggering around in rags, you know, through the ashes of civilization. It just means uh, we're, we're going through a period of economic upheaval, political upheaval, social, cultural, I would say even spiritual upheaval. But the comfort factor, you're going to have to get used to things being uncomfortable. I don't like it, but I think we need to face this squarely and and prepare as best we can. And the growing scarcity of critical parts like microchips, like to build new cars, among other things, is signaling a real problem within our economy. Got an article here from Charles Hugh Smith. This is from his website of Two Minds that says the U.S. economy in a nutshell, when critical parts are an indefinite back order, the machine grinds to a halt. Now, I don't know if you know somebody who works within the manufacturing sector, but boy, oh boy, we do not want to goof off. You know, and and ignore this until suddenly we realize, man, I can't get anything that I really need. So here's what Charles Hugh Smith has to say. He says a great many essential components in America are in on indefinite back order, and that includes the lifestyle of endless globally sourced goodies at low, low prices. Setting aside the transitory inflation parlor game for a moment, he says, let's look at what happens when critical parts are unavailable for whatever reason. 
For example, they're on back order or indefinite back order. In other words, the supplier has no visibility on when the parts will be available. If the part that blew out is 0.1% of the entire machine and the other 99.9% still works perfectly, the entire machine is still dead in the water without that critical component. That's a pretty good definition of systemic vulnerability and fragility. A fragility that becomes much, much worse if there are two or three components which are on indefinite back order. See, this is the problem with shipping much of your supply chain overseas. You create extreme systemic vulnerability and fragility even as you rake in big profits from reducing costs. Speaking of costs, he says, let's look at the costs of having a large, costly, complex mechanism sitting idle in a non-functioning state due to some broken element for which there is no new substitute available. Whatever productive capacity that mechanism or process had is now stuck at zero. Buying a new replacement is extremely costly. And that's not always available for all the same reasons that parts and components aren't available. Finding someone to fabricate a new component is not easy due to the wholesale transfer of manufacturing moxie and capability overseas. So you might be able to find someone who can weld a replacement strut, but try finding someone to fab a new bicycle derailleur, or better yet, a multi-layer semiconductor chip. What about 3D fabrication? Doesn't that solve this problem? If the part can be printed, yes, but there are actually limits on what can be 3D fabbed. You can't 3D fab a complex thermostat or a controller, for example. You can't 3D fab a rubber gasket either, or a great many other bits of petrochemical-based manufacturing. Scarcities are not limited to parts and components, he says. Skilled people can be scarce too. For example, there's a limited supply of ICU doctors and nurses. The training required to work in ICU is specialized and experiential. Throwing someone with minimal training into is, is, in is not a substitution that's going to work. And you can't order an ICU staff from China or print one digitally the way the Federal Reserve creates currency out of thin air. It takes many years to train the staff to function at a high level in the intensive care unit. Now, a great many labor scarcities exist for skilled workers who cannot be replaced except by someone with the same training and years of experience. This is one reason ICUs can break down. There is no replacement staff available. There's no way to print more. So he says, it turns out there is also a scarcity of people willing to do the dirty work jobs America needs done for wages that haven't kept up with inflation. Charles Hugh Smith says, as I've explained here, the $1.65 minimum wage I earned in 1970, if factored for real-world inflation, is around $18 per hour, arguably closer to $20 per hour. So he says the solution is to raise the pay to levels that attract workers, but then this requires raising prices on the goods and services to the point that the customers can no longer afford them. But wait! Can we automate all work and deliver full, gee whiz, free money, no work communism to everyone? Well, he says, I invite everyone who reckons this is in the realm of the doable to design, program, and manufacture an automated robot that can trundle out to the laundry room, pop open, pop open a broken clothes dryer, diagnose the problem, manage to find a new controller board, fit it correctly, and properly reconnect all the little wiring bits, close it up, test it, lift the dryer back on the washing machine, and do all that 
for the relatively modest cost of a human repair person. When you accomplish fabricating and programming that robot to do all the work without instruction or oversight, by by all means, he says, let us know how much it costs to design, program, and manufacture. And what the payback of the development and manufacturing process will cost amortized over the short life of the robot and how reliable it is in the real world. See, his point is that fantasies are nice, but reality is far more demanding. Charles Hugh Smith says there can also be scarcities of competence. So there may be replacements who claim competence, but when reality intrudes on the shuck and jive, their competence was illusory. And the net result is the entire institution can be described by President G.W. Bush's most memorable phrase, this sucker's going down. There can also be scarcities of institutional infrastructure and capacity. Once the institution, enterprise, state agency, etc., has been strip-mined of redundancy, institutional memory and competence, well, then the first scarcity that cannot be replaced is the first domino that topples all the other dominoes of systemic vulnerability and fragility. He says the Federal Reserve can print trillions of dollars and the federal government can borrow and blow trillions of dollars, but neither can print or borrow supply chains, scarce skills, institutional depth or competence. That nice, shiny new semiconductor fab you reckon will solve the chip shortage? You can print the billions of dollars needed in an instant, but the machinery, expertise, and time can't be conjured up quite so quickly. The fab is years away from completion no matter how many freshly conjured dollars you throw into the air. So when critical parts are on indefinite back order, the machine grinds to a halt. That's the U.S. economy in a nutshell. And he says a great many essential components in America are on indefinite back order, including the lifestyle of endless globally sourced goodies at low, low prices. That lifestyle is out of stock and it cannot be replaced with financialization fakery. He says, hey, Federal Reserve, can you conjure up a non-corrupt financial system, a domestic supply chain, and an economy of open competition, transparency, accountability, and competence? If not... You're even more worthless than we feared. Got some pretty good links in that story, too, that'd be worth your time to follow. I have a, I had that link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. Again, it's Charles Hugh Smith. Yeah, I think this is, uh, this is some of the best analysis I've seen in a bit. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Got a couple quick stories I want to share here in the final segment. This one, I just have to shake my head. I'm not surprised to see this coming, but, you know, privacy really matters, and and it especially matters when it comes to your personal financial privacy. Oh, I understand the Internal Revenue Service would like to know every dime that passes through your hands because if something good is happening in your life, Uncle Sugar wants his cut of the action, right? He wants to share in your joy. Give me my money. Where's my money? Pay up, man. Well, some politicians seem like they are determined to provide us with an object lesson on why privacy is important. Peter Jacobson writing for the financial, for the, uh, the Foundation for Economic Education, 
shares how the Treasury Department is now seeking to track financial transactions of bank accounts, personal bank accounts, over $600. Because, you know, they care about you. Listen to this. Peter Jacobson says in May, the Treasury Department released the Biden administration's revenue proposals for fiscal year 2022. One aspect of this document that has gone underreported is the administration's new plan for reporting requirements for financial institutions. The document is unequivocal about the administration's goal for financial reporting, stating this proposal would create a comprehensive financial account information reporting regime. So the Biden administration's goal here is to increase tax revenue by making sure no income avoids detection. How will the administration do this? Well, it plans to leverage financial institutions like banks. The proposal reads this requirement would apply to all business and personal accounts from financial institutions, including bank, loan, and investment accounts, with the exception of accounts below a low de minimis gross flow threshold of $600 or fair market value of $600. So let's put that in plain English. In other words, financial institutions will be required to report any flows in and out of business and personal accounts of more than $600. Now, this reporting requirement is far above any current requirements on financial institutions. And as the document itself states, currently only information for certain types of revenue, including 1099 forms, uh, MISC, NEC, and K, require reporting. Now, some may view this proposal of the, by the Biden administration positively, right? After all of this isn't an attempt at raising taxes, the goal of this policy is to ensure that individuals pay what's legally required, isn't it? But there are two issues with this way of thinking. The first issue is highlighted by economist Ludwig von Mises' insight that capitalism breathes through the loopholes. The great innovations and improvements in well-being made available through capitalism were not generated in a loophole-free system. Oftentimes, the most important innovations began as small startups with razor-thin margins. As loopholes close, the chance of these risky startups succeeding declines. Entrepreneurs are not ignorant to the barriers of regulation and taxation. When something's taxed, you get less of it. If any entrepreneurs are right on the fence about whether a new business venture is likely to be worth it, increasing costs even a little bit may be enough to persuade them otherwise. Economists call this being on the margin. Avoiding taxes and reporting on small-dollar transactions, either intentionally or unintentionally, is another form of loophole. Do your businesses are required to follow strict tax reporting rules. But much like driving the speed limit, the de facto reporting often departs from the official rule. To understand the danger of making businesses comply with tax law to the letter, consider how difficult it would be for businesses to do so. The tax code is now so long that nobody, including government officials, are sure of its length. How can business owners be sure they're complying with a document of unknown length? Simply put, they can't. Therefore, not only will these increased financial reporting requirements raise taxes on entrepreneurs on the margin, they'll also force businesses to expend more time, more resources, ensuring they pay the proper amount of taxes. Any tax audit with access to every account over $600 will crush businesses without a team of accountants or lawyers able to justify every transfer. So the burden of this policy then will fall primarily on small businesses, 
without access to a massive internal legal team. A policy that punishes small businesses like this may be good for large corporations, but it's bad for market competition. As Mises noted, capitalism suffocates without loopholes. Now, the second issue associated with Biden's proposal is its effect on financial privacy. The administration's focus on increasing financial reporting is becoming a consistent theme. For example, the Information Reporting Regime document also includes proposals for cryptocurrency reporting, which could be seen as a precursor to the crypto reporting requirements shoehorned into the infrastructure bill. This increase in financial scrutiny provided by access to every transaction greater than $600 associated with personal accounts would provide an unprecedented look into the finances of many Americans. Even the powerful political will behind the 2002 Patriot Act only led requirements to requirements rather that banks report suspicious transactions of $5,000 or more. Much like small businesses, most individuals don't have access to a team of lawyers and accountants the way that D.C. politicians and bureaucrats do. As such, these new requirements are likely to hurt poor and middle-income Americans whose primary source of income is non-traditional. This is unsurprising given the Biden administration's record of threatening gig work, for instance. Actually, I was having this conversation with a friend last night. Those of us who want to work in the gig economy, the government's putting the squeeze on us. Now, some may argue that privacy is unnecessary because you have nothing to fear if you have nothing to hide. But again, individuals cannot be expected to perfectly comply with a document of unspecified length. Unfortunately, as the government approaches perfect information, perfect compliance becomes the standard. So at one time, perhaps, community banks or other small financial institutions interested in keeping customers around could have provided resistance to this by generating political pushback or workarounds for customers. However, government policies have effectively destroyed a more decentralized network of financial institutions. Since the early 1990s, the number of small banks has fallen from over 10,000 to below 5,000. Now politicians are proposing to leverage their relationships with a few big players who are too big to fail to examine every aspect of Americans' finances. Especially with the lockdowns, the federal government already has small businesses, independent contractors, and the economy in general in a stranglehold. This new information reporting regime will only tighten its economically lethal grip. This is, again, Peter Jacobson writing for the Foundation for Economic Education. little something to keep in mind. I know there has to be a way around this. So where are the creative entrepreneurial minds to, to help us find it? All right, let's end on a high note here. Um, when things start to get overwhelming, humor is a sign of light and life. Isaac Morehouse has a really great reminder that laughter provides a boost when we need it the most. He says, the more jokes are told in a culture, the healthier it is, and the more things allowed to be joked about. Individual jokes are not always good or in good taste or kind. They can be nasty and dark and uncalled for. But the propensity to joke and allow jokes, the boundaries around what is laugh-addible and how able a culture is to laugh, directly correlate with good things. He says, I've been heavily bummed out by what seems a decline in humor. Most of the bastions of at least reasonably funny stuff are utterly unfunny these days. 
Now, there are beacons of light often coming from people who a mere decade ago were the least funny of all. But it seems culture is dominated by the weird, the ugly, the dark, the self-serious, the self-righteous, and the grave. So Isaac Morehouse says, when I begin to get grumpy about this, I realize that being grumpy is the opposite of being funny. To combat the lack of laughs, I should start laughing or making others laugh, then complaining. A good friend with a very dry wit used to say that being unfunny was the greatest crime. Theft, murder, these are forgivable, but an unfunny person? Well, now on an individual level, the statement works as a joke. But on a culture-wide level, maybe it's not just a joke. Isaac Morehouse says an unfunny culture may be the worst culture of all. When humor is not appreciated or tolerated, it's a sign the most dangerous things have taken hold. But he says on the flip side, laughter killed the devil. By the way, you'll have to click the link to to understand that last reference. But this uh, article is linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Take a look, click on it, read it, share it with friends if you want. Consider becoming a supporter of this uh, broadcast and maybe even becoming a regular subscriber. There's some nice perks for my listeners who choose to subscribe. Details are there in today's show notes. Thanks again for joining me in this session of Wrong Think. Let's get back together again tomorrow. This is The Brian Hyde Show.